Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you that this is the day that you have made. And as long as you made this day, we have every reason to rejoice and be glad in it. Because we know that in this day, we can never be disadvantaged. In this day, the lines are falling onto us in pleasant places. And in this day, we enjoy the generosity of the Father. We thank you for a contrite and a broken heart. We thank you for wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. We thank you for grace to spend time in your presence. And we pray that may Christ alone be exalted in our discussion. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Wow, we thank God for the gift of life. We must wear the words of him who has sent us while it is day. For night cometh when no man can be able to work. So we have continued our study on rightly divided. Um, and I think we're on the part four. We're on the fourth path, we have looked at some basic things about the historic canonization of the Bible. Then we went to look on, then we started to look at the things we should take note and be able to rightly divide. Then we said that you should be a spiritual person because the Bible is a spiritual book. It's a book of divine origin. Then we talked about the master key. I like to call it the master key of reading. The master key of reading. And then we ended on last week and i talked a bit about context that was the last thing that we ended on so we'll be taking up from context but before that you know our scripture for perusal is second timothy 2 15 steady to show yourself approved a workman that needed not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth steady so basically all we are doing is that we are just learning how do we study the bible because when we study it that we'll be able to rightly divide it and we said the first thing that we need to know in studying the Bible that the person studying the Bible must be a spiritual person. You must be alive and active in the spirit. You must be a man of prayer. You must be a man of fellowship. What you do is that in prayer and fellowship, you raise your spiritual antenna, if I should say. So you are able to easily pick up frequencies, heavenly frequencies. <laughs> so immediately you pick up your Bible, you realize that you are already sensitive to the leadings of the Holy Spirit. You are already sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It really facilitates the Bible study. And it gives the answer, the entrance of your word bringeth light. It's the Holy Spirit that ushers us into the entrance of his word. And Jesus himself said that when he comes, he will guide us into all truth. And in studying the Bible, the Holy Spirit's ministry of guiding us into all truth comes to play. Then we look at the importance of reading. As I always say, just reading the Bible, you'll be amazed the revelation and the depth of truth that you have missed out on. If only you have read the book of Esther, you'll be amazed. If only you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll be amazed. If only you read the book of Jude, the book of Philemon, the book of First John, if only you read these books, you would realize that the truth is plain before you. And Jesus himself said in Matthew that unto you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. It is not given to a selected few. It is not given to those in the ordained ministry. But anybody who has expressed faith in Christ Jesus, who has the Holy Spirit living in him, to him it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Then we looked on the fact that we need to read it in context. And that's what we ended last week. And I said the first context we should look at is that who is saying what you are reading and under what condition the person see it. And it's very important because in the Bible, there are different voices in the Bible. God spoke in the Bible. Animals spoke in the Bible. Men, natural men spoke in the Bible. And Lucifer himself spoke in the Bible. So the way you should approach words spoken by Lucifer is not the same way you should approach words spoken by Jesus. Words spoken by natural men it's not the same we should approach it by words spoken by people filled of the Spirit. And I think I gave the example of Manoah, Samson's father. He was a natural man. So the being he saw, that came to give him a muse. 
that his wife would give birth because he was a natural man he called that being god so how you would approach manuel's speeches and statements he makes in the bible should be different from the way you approach let's say stephen in acts chapter 7 when he was making or in acts chapter i think 6 or after the seven i know you saw the chapter when he was making his defense the bible said and stephen full of the holy spirit began to speak and the spirit gave a lot of insight into something that even in the old testament were not given so many things that happened in the old testament stephen answered it for us in the new testament and we can just take let's just take an example of one question that stephen answered in the in the new testament let's go to acts chapter 6 verse 10 so now stephen has been called and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which stephen spoke that's a verse 10 and they caught him up and they took him to a council and the verse 15 the bible says and when the council looked upon him steadfastly they saw his face as the face of an angel and if you go to the verse 7 that's when Stephen began to break down the journey of the Israelites and he even answered a question as to when Moses came the first time the people rejected him okay i found the verse acts chapter 7 the verse 55 it says that but he being full of the holy spirit Stephen being full of the holy spirit so all that Stephen was saying he was saying it when he was full of the holy spirit and he gave a wonderful exegesis about the life of the israelites and moses and in that exegesis he even explained why moses was rejected the first time by the way the book of exodus you won't really see the answer over there but when you go into the book of acts chapter 7 you would see the answer another thing that stephen answered in his exegesis about who gave the law to moses if you read the book of exodus it gives the idea that god himself i mean the father came on mount sinai and literally handed over the tabernacles to moses but when you read acts chapter 7 you know it was not god the father who came so i would want to read it for you so please go read the whole of acts chapter 7 and you'll be amazed the insights So what the people of old were describing they didn't even know because most of them were natural men they were just, they were just describing things as they saw it but Stephen being full of the holy spirit began to give wonderful revelation and so many things as i said he answered and the two one that i liked so much about one who gave Moses the law on mount sinai it wasn't the father because we get the impression of god himself so most are seeing god but when you read after the seven where it wasn't god who gave the commandments to moses and that makes a big difference hopefully one day when we do the law and grace we will answer that question so you see just by reading the bible you get to realize that so many questions that you are seeing the answer is in the bible so that's the first thing you should know about context i know when we talk about context most people are only narrow to the pretext and the postext as in what was said before and what was said after but that is not alone now the second thing you should know about context in reading the bible is that the fact that the bible described an activity or a behavior of somebody doesn't mean that the bible is endorsing it or prescribing it for you you should know that the fact that the bible is describing something or a behavior of people or of its heroes if i should say doesn't mean that the bible is endorsing it or the bible is prescribing it so the fact that noah drank wine and we know that noah was a righteous man noah was a man who was used by god the fact that noah drank wine doesn't endorse or validate the drinking of wine and i'm not going to answer whether drinking wine is correct or not <laughs> rightly divided you will be able to find your answer and even from the same story you know what happened after noah drank wine and that is where we are even deriving the theory that african the, the black race was cursed because the pronouncement noah made and you know what happened to him and his daughters so the fact that the bible is describing what noah did doesn't mean that the bible is endorsing what noah did judah slept with his daughter in law you know the daughter in law the husband died because of an abomination he did in a lost tragedy and he realized that Charlie, if she doesn't do what <laughs> she won't get a son and she dressed like a prostitute and she went to the gate of the city and when judah saw her thinking that she was a prostitute he slept with her but judah was one of our heroes of faith So the fact that he's doing that is not endorsing what he did. The fact that people in the Bible, great men of God, God and men use people that we honor and respect. The fact that they practice polygamy doesn't endorse polygamy. 
the fact they did certain activities doesn't endorse it. So the Bible is just describing to us certain things that people did. Even Peter, even Peter in the New Testament, at the point he was being hypocritical, that Paul had to confront him. So you need to understand this thing. Frankly speaking, if you are writing your own book, you would realize how biased you would be. Maybe you are like David, you went to sleep with somebody's wife, you'd be sugarcoating it. You won't say it as plain as it is. You won't you would accept guilt, but you like to pray the victim. But the Bible didn't pray the victim for any of our heroes. And that's very important. So we should need to understand that the fact that the Bible described something doesn't mean that it is prescribing something. Full stop. So the next thing we need to understand about context is that every subject in the Bible is situated in a context. What do I mean by that? You don't take one scripture as is said about something to establish a doctrine. And that falls under reading. So if you want to study about marriage, you don't just take one statement somebody made or one practice somebody did to form a doctrine of marriage. So I always start with one of the simplest ways to study the Bible. So this is the topic of marriage. What do you do? You start from Genesis to Revelation. You note down everything that is said about marriage. One, and you notice and you note down every situation that explains the condition of marriage. If you want to study about Titan, you must note down all the scripture that talks about Titan and you must note down all the scenarios that describe Titan. So you note them down and now thank God for the internet. It's not a difficult thing to do. Thank God for Bible apps. You can easily do this search. So you must write down all these scriptures. Then you begin to take them one after the other. And you put them together in the context of one, who is speaking, what condition the person was speaking. That's one. Two, you take them in the context of are they describing it or they are prescribing it. That's two. And three, you take it in the context of dispensation. That is very important, but that's a whole topic on its own. And basically, I'll just narrow everything into two dispensations. Every school of thought have their own dispensation. But for the sake of this study, when I'm talking about dispensation, I'm talking about either the law or grace. So you should note this thing down. So let's listen to the example of marriage. You know, at time people came to ask Jesus something about marriage, about divorce. And Jesus gave a wonderful answer. He said, Moses permitted you people to do something because of the hardened nature of your heart. This is very, very important. So Moses gave an instruction to the people of Israel to divorce their wives under certain conditions. And they came to ask Jesus about it. And Jesus gave us an insight that the thing that Moses wrote, he didn't write it because that was the original intent or that was the actual will of God, but because of the hardened nature of your heart. And this is very important, especially in understanding your testament, because many of the things God told the people of the Israelites were because of the state of their hearts. And it's very important, especially when it comes to holiness, because God at that time, let me just try and deviate a bit, God at that time was helping the people of Israel renew their minds because these are people that have spent over 400 years in slavery. And God wanted to simply teach these people that there's a difference between holy and unholy. There's a difference between a life called to live for God and a life not called to live for God. So God in his attempt to train people, you see, it's like if you have a child, I'm not sure if I'm getting the phrase right, but I've been called potty training or something like if you want to teach your child how to use a washroom. So first, you won't let the baby go to the washroom, you give the baby a pot, hoping that whenever the child wants to pee, the pot will be something mobile and close, so that the child will be using the pot. The pot is not the real thing. The pot is not the WC, it's not the main deal. But the pot is simply to train the child that when you want to ease yourself, this is what you must do. Then what do you do? You gradually wean the child, W-E-A-N, weaning. I think they even using agricultural setting among farm animals. So God was actually weaning the Israelites to a particular land. And if you pay that, if you are taking notes, last week I gave a principle that God operates by. Talking about Father, when God wants to teach us something, He teaches us from the physical to the spiritual. And I reread from 1 Corinthians 15. So even when God was bringing the original Adam, he first brought, in quote, a counterfeit Adam. Who was the first Adam? 
So you will notice a train of thought in God's dealings with us. He always starts from the physical to the spiritual, from the known to the unknown. And because men are physical beings, God always starts with that. So God in training the Israelites about the fact that they are a cold generation, they are cold people, God was clearly telling them that everything is not normal. So God started telling them that there are certain food that is holy, and certain food that is not holy. There's certain animals that are holy, certain animals that are not holy. Remember, God created all these animals. God created everything. So then why would he create something unholy? Remember, in the creation story, he created all these things. They are very good or they are good. But God was just simply teaching them how to lose appetite for the things of Egypt. So God intentionally did not make them eat anything that they were eating in Egypt, just so that they would lose their taste buds for Egypt. And it's the same thing that's happening to us as Africans. That is why we have a strong taste for foreign goods. You don't find this thing elsewhere. We have to do adverts, patronize made in Ghana or patronize made in Ghana. Why? Because for several years, we have been in bondage of slavery. And due to that, we have a taste for everything. It is so sad that people want their children to have a particular accent because they don't like the Ghanaian accent. So we call them Lafa, <laughs> locally acquired foreign accent. People are even, Ghanaians are even ashamed for their children to have the local accent because they think the local accent is inferior to a foreign accent. And the same thing that God was trying to do with the Israelites. Look at the way we have to make noise. Buy made in Ghana shoe, buy made in Ghana rice, buy made in Ghana. Do you think when you go to Germany or when you go to Russia, or when you go to England or when you go to Japan, look at Japan, the cars they were bringing. When Japan started producing cars, everybody was laughing at them, but they were patronizing their own cars. And today, everybody's buying Toyota car because <laughs> or buying Japan car because the, the fuel consumption in the West is cheaper as compared to the American models and I think the German models. I'm not really good in cars, so please, if I'm getting it wrong, don't come and attack me. But you see, because we have developed an affinity for the white man up till now, several years after independence, we are still battling this. Look at our educational system. Look at our language system. Look at our culture, our eating habits. Everything is after the European or those who colonized us, even though we claim we are an enlightened generation. So you can imagine the battle that the people of Israelites were going through and go through the law. One of the reasons for giving all those laws, one, there are many, was to kill their taste buds for Egypt. Just to let these people know that you are no longer in slavery. You are now a called out people. But the reality is that it doesn't matter what you eat. Jesus himself clearly answered this, I think, in Matthew 13. He said that it's not what enters your mouth that defiles you, but it's what comes out of your mouth. But God, in putty training us, I don't know if I'm getting the right word, or in training us, started telling us that first, some fish is good, some type of fish is not good, fish with scale is good, fish without scale is good. This is good. God was just simply teaching us about the fact that there's a difference between holiness and unholiness. But whether you eat this meat or you don't eat this meat, it has absolutely nothing to do with the work of God or nothing to do with the life of God. So this, I think let's just read that scripture because I know people have an issue with food and I'll get to clothing in Matthew 13. Jesus answered it. it can't, I remember when somebody approached me about this question and the person belonged to a group of denominational believers in those things. And I knew how these arguments or how these discussions can go. So I didn't even bother to engage in a discussion. I just sent the person a text that Charlie, read it for yourself. Oh, nah. <laughs> Matthew 15 verse 11. So let's start from the verse 10. Wow, what is this? So this is this just so sweet. Look at the verse 10. If I try and read Matthew 15, because Jesus tackles the issue about the law. And it says, and he called the multitude and said, hear and understand. The Bible here. As I said, simply reading, you will see all the answers I'm looking for. Matthew 15 verse 10. He says, hear and understand, not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of his mouth, this is what defiles a man. So it is not the food you eat, it's not the fish you eat, whether the fish has scales or it doesn't have scales, that is not what makes you accepted before God, neither is it what makes you defiled or not. And you should appreciate these things. So when you are reading the Bible, you should read it in the context of who is saying, under what condition that one, is it describing or prescribing something, and under which dispensation. 
Is it a dispensation of the law or the dispensation of grace? So as I said, listen, you want to study on marriage. You must note down every single scripture. It's like I'm giving too many marriage. Let's say holiness. <laughs> if you want to study about holiness, you must note down every single scripture about holiness and every single scenario that paints the picture about holiness. Then you begin to read all of them and know what all of them are saying. And you begin to situate it in context. So that's why you can't just read a portion and come up with the doctrine of holiness and come up with the doctrine of marriage. So as I said, I just remember, coming back to the same Jesus thing, he said that, Jesus said, and because of the hardening nature of your heart, Moses permitted you to, to divorce under this condition. But this is something that in the beginning, it was not so. And this is a very important thing, even among Bible scholars, I think it's called the law of first mention. It's a very important principle in studying the Bible. Whenever you want to study about something, look at the first time that word was used. And I think last week I gave an example of holiness. The first time the word holiness was used was in Exodus chapter 3, when God was telling Moses that the land in which you are standing is a holy ground. Automatically debunking the issue that holiness doesn't just deal with sin, or holiness is not talking about sinlessness. If you want to talk about marriage, go to the first time the idea or the word marriage was introduced and begin to build your study. So by the time you go through scripture and note down all these things about the topic you want to study, you put all together through the agency of the spirit and of reading. And in context, you'll be amazed. So please, give yourself a personal assignment. There's a particular topic you're finding difficult. It can be titan. It can be holiness. It can be being born again. It can be salvation. It can be the blood of Jesus how do we use the blood of Jesus and the blood of Bulls? You can give yourself a personal study. Give yourself one month. Maybe the story about rapture or about Trinity. And you'll be amazed that all these things we think they are difficult is simply because you have not committed yourself to the studying of the word. That's why it looks ruthless in your eyes. I don't know if ruthless is a good word, but <laughs> it's a word. And the last thing about context, and it's one of my personal favorites, is that one way to read the Bible in context is to put yourself in the story. And this is very important for you personally. The reason why many of us, the Bible does not breathe life to us is because when we are reading the Bible, we disassociate ourselves from what we are reading. That is why people are going through issues in life and they don't seem to find the solution they are going through in Scripture because they think that the life they are living or the life they are experiencing is very different from the life in the Bible. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus came in the flesh. Because he came to experience what we are experiencing so that he can be a qualified high priest. One of the qualifications of the high priest is that he must be from the people in order to represent the people. It's like democracy. The person must be a Ghanaian. I even heard that some officers in Ghana, if you have a double citizenship, you can't occupy I, I don't know how to, I don't know which office in particular or that, I don't know, but I heard it's, it's something like that, there's something like that thing. That if you're a double citizen, you can't occupy a certain position because you will not be, I, I know the main is because of treason or whatever, but if you want to represent the people, you must be from the people. So Jesus came to share in our pain. So when you are dealing with rejection, Jesus is able to comfort you because he himself has been rejected before. When you look like a person in a broken home, Jesus understands it because he himself, he was being mocked as the son of Mary. That's how the way they described Jesus, the son of Mary. And it was an insult if you understand the Jewish culture and you'll be doing culture. Because you are mostly called the son of your father. So people are teasing him as the son of Mary, meaning that they don't even know who your father is. Some say, I just, in other words, in current day, they'll be calling Jesus a bastard. But you see, because we don't put ourselves in the story, we are not able to receive what the Bible calls the comfort of scripture. In, in Romans chapter 15, that these things were written for our sake, that through the learning, we'll be able to be comforted. The story I like the most, and if you are listening to this podcast, I don't think there's an episode I've, <laughs> I've talked on without mentioning this guy's name, Joseph, of the Old Testament. That guy is phenomenal. I just don't know how Joseph was able to go with God for 30 years. You see, if you begin to read the story of Joseph, putting yourself in that story, You'll be amazed that you have no reason to complain in life. You'll be amazed that you can never be disadvantaged in life, no matter your situation. Now think about it. Joseph had no Bible. Joseph did not have church service. Joseph did not have some, some crown crown. <laughs> he didn't have the Holy Spirit. Joseph had nothing to comfort him. 
Joseph had nobody to pray for him. Joseph had no scripture, nothing to read to give himself encouragement. The only thing Joseph had were two dreams. And I always ask myself this question, what should that those two dreams were from God? Like, at a point, I was literally the thing I ate some banku of for that night, and I'm now seeing moon and stars. But what the meaning of moon and stars? But but Joseph based his whole life on just two dreams. But look at your life. You have received prophecy upon prophecy. You have the Holy Spirit. You have Bible. You have podcast. You have text service. Yet still you doubt God. Yet still you get discouraged. Yet still you give up. Yet still you take shortcuts. But look at someone like Joseph. Ah. At the age of 16, betrayed by your brothers, sold into slavery. You were in prison. Oh my God. You see, when you begin to put yourself in a story, you would realize how comforting it is. When you put yourself in a story of Noah, building an ark for over 100 years, and people are ridiculing you. Have you ever been laughed at before? <laughs> oh God. You see, because sometimes you think the experience you are going to are unique. Maybe you are the only Christian in your family and your siblings give a certain eye or maybe your roommates are looking at you in a particular way. You feel awkward. You don't like to be ridiculed. Do you know the ridicule Noah went through? An old man building an ark because you said rain is coming. <laughs> you see, when you begin to read the Bible in the context, when you begin to put yourself in that context, you'll be amazed how the scripture will comfort you that there is no season of your life you are going through that is outside of the will of God for your life. And I think I've quoted the story about Anna before, about how God closed the womb of Anna and Anna had to push forth in prayer. So there are times you will go weary in prayer when you read about people who have traveled in prayer. Look at the, the, the prophetess Anna in the, in, the, in the New Testament when she lost her husband at an early age. For over 77 years, she was spending day and night, she was in the temple praying for the redemption of Israel. For 77 years, this woman, when she lost her husband, she didn't say, God has been unfair to me. She didn't say, life has been cruel to me. She didn't say, I want to give up my life. There's no meaning to my life. She didn't come up with all sorts of these funny quotes we have nowadays, but she gave herself to prayer for about 77 years just to see the coming of Jesus. You see, when you begin to read the Bible like this, you'll be amazed how sweet the Bible is. Look at Peter when he was walking on water. We have done this so many times. The Bible said, and when Peter stepped forth, at the word of Jesus, and Peter told Jesus, if it is you, tell me to come. And Peter stepped forth. The Bible said, and Peter, when he saw the wind, you know, Peter's eye was on Jesus. But at the point came when the wind became boisterous, and Peter saw the wind. And immediately he saw the way he began to get distracted. You can put yourself in this story. There are many times you are encouraged in life. But maybe immediately you see your results being posted. And you begin to sink. Immediately you see that you have not been accepted for this particular job. You begin to sink. Immediately you begin to take your eyes off Jesus. And you look at the circumstances of your life. Then you begin to sink. But the good news is that immediately Peter cried out to Jesus. Jesus stretched forth his hands. Ah, how can you read such scenarios in the Bible and not get comforted? Because when you are reading the Bible, it's like you are reading a book. You don't put yourself in the story. So whenever I notice that there's anxiety developing in my heart, there's doubt developing in my heart, what the Holy Ghost reminds me that you are looking at the wind. Stop looking at the wind. Sometimes I might think I've gone too far. I have already taken a shortcut, but the Holy Spirit will prompt me. No matter how far you go, immediately Peter cried, Jesus. The Bible said, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand. What trouble are you going through? What delay, what frustration, what anxiety are you going through that you don't seem to find the comfort of Scripture? I can go on and on. Look at Abraham. Oh, look at David. At a point, David had to pretend as if he was a madman just so that they wouldn't kill him. Oh, David was being chased by a demon-possessed king. Do you know what that means? A king chasing you alone is enough. It's like you are a politician and your fellow politician has gained power and now that guy is trying to kill you. As if that was not enough, he was demon-possessed. I mean, a demon-possessed man chasing you. <laughs> but David was still famous. Look at the story of the life of, of the disciples. A young boy from Galilee just comes and says, follow me. 
and they leave everything they have and they follow Jesus. Yet God tells you to sacrifice one hour in prayer and it seems so difficult for you. Put yourself in the scripture and you'll be amazed how alive the word of God comes. I feel like preaching now. <laughs> so that's just for context. Who is speaking under what condition? Describe or prescribe. Read the scripture in the whole context of scripture. That means that don't just study or don't just make up doctrines based on two or three scriptures, but look at it in the body of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And the final thing about context is that you put yourself in the story and you'll be amazed. The last thing we'll be looking at for tonight, and this is what will also link us to next week's episode, is this thing when you are reading the Bible. For you to be able to rightly divide the Bible, especially for us English-speaking people, always pinch yourself that the Bible was not written in English. Please. <laughs> if you don't appreciate, I know we know that the Bible was not written in English, but we don't appreciate how that influences our ability to rightly divide the word of truth. The Bible was not written in English. So please have that at the back of your mind. And knowing this will let you appreciate the importance of language and words and their meaning. Now, what do I mean? For example, in the English language, we have about 6,000 to 7,000 words. And you know, words keep coming up every day. There's this saying that immediately the king makes a grammatical error, it becomes a new word. So if the Queen of England says stadiums, so of saying stadia, automatically the dictionary has to include stadiums, <laughs> not stadia. So I don't know if that's neutral or just something like that. But you know, so even in words, every day new words are added to the language. I don't know if it's a word, like if it's an English word, but we have something we call Suarez the ball. <laughs> Suarez the ball. You know, so each and every time words are coming. And the English language is about 6,000 to 7,000 words. But the Hebrew and the Greek and the Arabic make, which were the languages that the Bible was written in, has about 11,000 to 12,000 words. English has 6,000. These other languages have about 11 to 12,000 words, meaning that these languages are more richer than the English. In fact, the English language is not a rich language. You know, most of us that are English speaking. You think the English language is dope, but unfortunately, I don't think I even Google English is not the most common language spoken in the world. If you, you can Google that, you are missed. But these other languages are more richer. That is why, for example, the most common example is that when the English man wants to say love, he basically has only one word: love. Whether it's the love a husband has for his wife, the love a parent has for his child, the love two friends have for each other, the love you have for a guest. It's still love. But when you go into these other languages, one same word is love. You have different words that are connoting the same thing in English. And it's very important we appreciate this thing about words. So when somebody will be saying agape, we are saying love. When somebody will be saying eros, we are saying love. When somebody is saying filio, we are saying love. When somebody is saying zena, we did so many men give us an expose of love. But when the Hebrew man or the Greek man is saying all these words, we are saying one word in English. So it lets us appreciate the fact that there are certain words that are in the original manuscript that are not found in the English language. That is one. And this will also lead us as next week. We will delve into the issue about Bible translations. We will look at it. We will look at it into details as much as possible. But this thing about languages should let us appreciate that everybody who is serious about studying the Bible, you need to have strong number. A Bible, I don't know if a Bible or a concordant, but a Bible that gives you the original words that are used or that were used. Now, I don't know if there's a hard copy, but I think there's a hard copy Bible of it. But most of have soft copy Bibles that have strong numbers. S-T-R-O-N-G, strong numbers. And if you have the Bible that has every word that they write, there's a certain number beside it. And that number, when you touch on it, if there is a soft copy Bible, it gives you either the Hebrew or the Greek or the Arabic word that was used. And then you will notice that even though, let's say, the English using love, when you get to whether maybe it's agape, and that will tell you that it's talking about the love God shows. And this is very important. For anybody who is serious about studying the Bible, you need to have a Greek and a Hebrew Bible. Not like a Bible as in the Bible, but a Bible that contains strong numbers. 
and my strongs numbers. I mean, the Bible that has numbers beside it, and that numbers gives the original arithmetic word. You cannot be a serious student of the Bible without these things. So, for everybody who is serious in making the effort of studying his Bible, of studying to show himself approved unto God, you need to get this. You need to get the Hebrew, the Strong's number. Don't please don't go and buy the hard copy Bible. I beg you. <laughs> Just get the soft copy Bible so you can go to your Play Store, your Apple Store, and type Bible with Strong's numbers. You will see. I believe it. We are technology babies, so you need to easily follow up. But it's important. The reason why it's important is because of one, as I said, the diversity in languages and the limitations in languages. The second reason why it's important is because of the changing meaning of words. The changing meaning of words. And the third reason why it's important is because of the different meaning of the same words to different people. Don't worry. Next week, I would elaborate on it more. But what somebody or what a Ghanaian, for example, let's say beautiful, how a Ghanaian man or what a Ghanaian man would see in a lady to say that this lady is beautiful may not be the same thing we see to qualify for beauty. So maybe for an Asian, he looks at the body size. So as long as you have a particular body size, you are beautiful. But when you come to Africa, we look at the body shape. So as long as you have this body shape, you are beautiful. And maybe when you are reading the Old Testament, that a particular word, Using the point of version use, and I'll get next to you delve deep into that. You are most people who are beautiful, they are described as fair ladies or fair to look upon. If a family use the King James um, version of the Bible, you would realize that most often they use the word she was a fair lady, and when they mean fair, they simply mean beautiful. So you would appreciate that words change and as I said, the Bible that was written over a period of 1,500 years, you can imagine the change that has gone within that 1,500 years, more or less after that 1,500 years. Now, the most common example that I know in our generation is the word cute. And mostly we say, oh, this lady is, is cute. If my research is right, and I hope it is, cute doesn't mean, or what cute means to a 21st century Ghanaian, it's not the same thing cute meant several years ago. Several years ago, when you tell somebody you are cute, you are simply telling the person that you are not nice, you are smallish, you are tiny. If I may be wrong, but the research I did that came out, that when you say somebody is cute, but not somebody who is small, tiny, is not beautiful, like a child. Somebody who is smallish, somebody who is tiny. But now, everybody is claiming cute. Now, depending on your smile, you have a particular smile that, oh, he's cute, she's cute, and you have also funny, funny. <laughs> So what cute means to us now is not the same thing that cute means several years ago. And you should appreciate the diversity that has gone on in languages or in cultures. And the most common example is the word shepherd. When a Jew says shepherd, it's very, very different when an African says shepherd, or to be more specific, when a Ghanaian says shepherd. So when David said, the Lord is my shepherd, what he meant is not the same thing when Mr. Samkwashi would say, the Lord is my shepherd. There's totally going to be a big difference. So how would you know what David actually meant in totality when he said the word shepherd is when you get these strong numbers. So you see the number beside shepherd and when you touch on it, it will give a more expansive explanation of when David said shepherd, what he used. Let's take a case study and we'll end with that. John 15, the verse 1 to verse 7. And in this case study, we'll apply the rules we have learned today. That is the rule of context and language and words and the rest. So please, I, I really appreciate it to get your Bible, John 15, so that we read it together and take notes. So this scripture will put into, or we have to apply all that we have studied so far in perusing the scripture. Verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the husband man. Verse 2, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that bears fruit, he presseth it, that he may bring much fruit. Verse 3, now ye are clean by the word which I have spoken unto you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Verse 6. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burnt. Let's end over there. So just between verse 1 to verse 6, we want to do a perusal. 
Now, just reading really like the way I read it, you will enjoy the sweetness of the word. Now, let's just see from the verse one. I am a vine, and my father, the husband, man, every branch in me. So now the question is, who is that branch? So as I said, maybe in your Bible study, you just read verse one and verse two. You want to know what that branch is. But if you just go few verses beneath, you will know who that branch is. So verse five says, I am the vine, and ye are the branches. So this puts into play the first principle we learned. That is reading the Bible. So just by reading, I will know who the vine is, who the husband man is, and who the branch is. So the first principle comes into play, just the reading of the word. Now, the second thing is about context. Now, let's put this in context. First, we know who is speaking, and it is Jesus who is speaking. So for Jesus, we don't need to ask about whether he's speaking as an influence of the Holy Spirit or he's speaking as a natural man, an Old Testament man. We don't need to because we all know Jesus. So we know that he's speaking as an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That sets out. We know he's speaking in the context of grace, introducing a new era. So that's all sets out. We know he's speaking to his disciples and he can extend to every member of the body of Christ. So that one's all set out. And we know that he's not, he's not describing something. He's prescribing something to us, a way of living. So that one is set up. But now let's go into um, words. Now, particularly the verse 2 and the verse 6, you will notice a seemingly contradiction and a bit of confusion. Verse 2 is saying, every branch in me. Now remember verse 5 is saying that we are the branch. So every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that bears fruit, he pegged that he may bring forth much fruit. So just reading this verse, it tells us that if you are not a fruitful Christian, Jesus takes you away. He clears you. He doesn't need you. You are useless to Jesus. That's what it, see, uh, it presupposes when you just read it. Look at the verse 6. If a man abided not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast him in fire and is burnt. So if you are trying to connect things, you would seem to say that what is in the verse 2, he's continuing it here. That if you are not fruitful, God will take you away. And where does it take you away to? The verse 6 that he cast you forth as a branch and you wither away. So people argue with the fact that if you are a Christian and not a fruitful Christian, God cast you into the lake of fire. But that's not what the Bible is saying. Now, I forgot we learned the principle the principle of details. Details. I forgot that one. Now, if you are putting details into function, you would realize the difference between verse 2 and verse 6. Verse 2 says, every branch. Verse 6 says, if a man. These are two different things. And the first way you notice the difference is by paying attention to details. Verse 2 is talking about a branch. And the branches are talking about his disciples, those who have expressed faith in him. We get that from the verse 5. But verse 6 is saying that every man, so verse 2, the people or the person or the group of people that Jesus was addressing in verse 2 is not the same as the verse 6. Verse 2 is talking about a branch. Verse 6 is talking about a man that is not in Christ. And a man who is not in Christ is not a branch. He is a man. So that will start to jog your memory and know God doesn't deal with believers and unbelievers the same. How do we know? Let's continue. Now, if you read the verse to say, every branch in me that bear no fruit, he taketh away. And here is where Strong's numbers will come into place. When the Bible says taketh away, what does that word taketh away means? And this is the key that you'll be able to fully understand the scripture. Without the Greek and the Hebrew words or without the strong numbers, you won't be able to fully grasp the scripture. Now, if you have that app, the number there is J and the J stands for Greek. So you see it's J142. I think it, it should be the same for every... Um, I don't know if it's the same, but in case you're having the same thing, the Greek... Or the number is J142, J standing for Greek. In the Old Testament, you see H, H standing for Hebrew. And in the instance, you see A for Aramaic. So if you touch the strong number, it gives you the Greek word that was used. And the word there is A-I-R-O. Now, when you read the meaning of the word, it means that to raise or to lift something up, to keep something in suspense. That is if you're a Greek person. Now, the same strong numbers, it gives you the Hebrew. So, when a Greek man uses the word Aru, he's talking about us, A-I-R-O. For the, to a Greek, he means to lift something up, to keep something in suspense. 
and to raise something up. So that word in Greek, the Hebrew word is, I don't know if your, your strong number has it. So for that one, the Hebrew word is, they have written H, Italian for Hebrew, and the number is 5375. I don't know if you're having the same numbers, but I really encourage you to download a Bible with the Strong's numbers. And you realize that the word means to expatiate from sin, to bear with, to carry, lift, or to lose, or to remove something away. And now this answers the riddle. So having this understanding, let's read the scripture again. Every branch in me that is not bearing fruit, God lifts up. God raises. God removes away from sin. God suspends. So now you are the meaning is different. Because to an Englishman, when he sees take it away, his mind goes to what is in verse 6. He's cast forth. But the word take it away doesn't mean that God is going to cast you forth. And now applying context again, you would realize that Jesus was talking in the sense of agriculture. And this will help you if you did agriculture. You know about the agriculture practice, mostly when you are doing layering. Or we have some plants that are creeping plants. I think like tomato. So... At a point in the life cycle of a tomato, the tomato branches begin to creep on the floor. And what happens is that because they are on the floor, they are easily prone to the attacks of insects and they are easily mixed with the soil. So they are not able to grow fully. So what does the husbandman do? The husbandman raises up the branch and supports the branch with a stick so that one, the branch is disassociated from the soil and so that it's exempt the branch and subsequently the fruit from the effects of insects that chew up the fruit. And this is simply what Jesus was saying in the verse 2, that every branch that does not bear fruit, the reason why you are not bearing fruit is because of your intermingling with sun, is because you have become a friend to the world. So what would God do? He would raise you up. He would suspend you. He would support you or he would take you away from what is causing you to backslide. God does not throw away a believer. And how will God take you up? One is by bringing some friends your way. It's by taking away certain friends from you. It's by introducing you to a certain environment. That's why sometimes we go through hard seasons in our life. Remember, what we're doing in the wilderness, we talk about the fact that why did God take the Israelites to the wilderness? It's because he considered them his children. And this talks about the disciplined work of a father. Because so if you're having a child and your child is behaving stubborn because of the friends in the neighborhood, what do you do? You take the child to another neighborhood or you take the child to a boarding school, but you just take the child away from the environment that is causing him to play the buffoonery. And that is simply what Jesus was saying. And every branch, and a branch is somebody who is in the vine. If you are a branch and you are not bearing fruit, it's because you are intermingling with sin. It's because your branch has fallen down and is in the soil and insects are chewing it up. So God takes a stick. I think it's called sticking. And they tie you around the stick. They give you a support system. God will introduce you into fellowship with certain people. God will introduce you to a church. God will introduce you to somewhere. He'll take you away from somewhere and place you into an environment where you can flourish. And that is simply what God is saying. But when we go to the verse 6, he says, if a man, so now Jesus is not talking about a Christian. He's talking about a normal man. And he says, abides not in me. But Jesus is saying that the way somebody will take a branch and throw the branch away, particularly when they are doing pruning, they cut off unwanted branches and they bundle it together and they bend. He said that the same way a farmer would prune or cut off a branch, bundle it together and throw it away. That same attitude is the same way God would deal with any person who is not connected to him. So Christians do not go to hell. And now when you say Christians, because of how diluted the word has become, you have to add spiritual Christian, God-fearing Christian, faithful Christian, blah, 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 Christian. A Christian is spiritual. A Christian is serving the Lord. A Christian is a person who does all these things. But now because everybody has their tag, we need to qualify spiritual, Holy Ghost, whatever, whatever. But a Christian in this spiritual sense. So you see, just this six verse, we have used the principle of reading. We have used paying attention to details. We have used context. We have used the understanding of the diversity of languages and the limitation it brings. Isn't Bible study sweet? We will pause over here and next week we will tackle 
two huge elephants in the room, the issue of culture and the issue of Bible translation. Because remember I said that what a particular word means to one culture is not the same thing it means to another culture. So I can give you a personal assignment. When a Jew says, the Lord is my shepherd, what does he really mean? And let's see what you come up with. You want to spend some time now in prayer. You want to pray the prayer David prayed. I know you are learning a lot. You want to pray that, Father, open down my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your word. Because we know that the entrance of your word bringeth forth light and it brings understanding to the simple. We need that light to guide our path. We need that light to be able to make the right decisions. Jesus said that you err because you know not the truth, nor the power of God. And the only way we can know the truth is by having entrance into his word that bringeth forth light. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, Lord. Anoint our eyes with eyes out that we may see. We have studied about the importance of seeing. And we said that spiritually, anything you cannot see, you cannot possess. So always revelation precedes possession. So God told Abraham, as long as your eyes can see, Elijah told Elisha, if you can see me go, you can attain it. If only we can see. And Jesus said, if a man can see the kingdom of God, he can enter it. We pray that God will anoint our eyes that we might see the mysteries in the kingdom. Because unto us it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Father, anoint our eyes. May we have eyes that see. May we have ears that hear. May we have senses that are responsive and receptive to your dealings. That whenever we want to spend time in fellowshiping with your word, you will bring forth light. You will flood the eyes of our understanding with light. That we may get access to the mystery. Revelation is the key to possession. Revelation brings stability and fruitfulness in our lives. Father, open down our eyes. Open the eyes of every listener in the name of Jesus. Father, may we get access to the mysteries of the kingdom because the path of a righteous man is like that of a light going brighter and brighter and brighter. We thank you that you have given us the arsenals of victory in this life and we know that we are more than conquerors. In the name of our Lord Jesus, Amen. Wow. We thank God so much. I think today has been a little bit heavier than last week. But please feel free to listen over and over again to be sure that you are really getting what you are teaching and what you are studying. And feel free if you have any questions, you can contact us on the Telegram channel, The Household of the Father. You just search for it and you will be able to find us. Please put these things into practice because you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed. And remember, in this week, in this new month, Remember to give God your very best and to make sure that you owe no man nothing but love. Bye-bye and see you next week. Bye.